0: Chapter One of the Ultimate Weapon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Ultimate Weapon by John W. Campbell. Patrol cruiser IPT 247 circling out toward Pluto on leisurely inspection tour to visit the outpost miners there, was in no hurry at all as she loafed along. Her six-man crew was taking it very easy, and easy meant two-man watches and low speed, to watch for the instrument panel and attend ship into the bargain. She was about thirty million miles off Pluto just beginning to get in touch with some of the larger mining stations out there when Buck Kendall's turn at the controls came along. Buck Kendall was one of life's little jokes. When nature made him, she was absent-minded. Buck stood six feet two in his stocking feet with his usual slight stoop in operation. When he forgot and stood up straight, he loomed about two inches higher, he had the body and muscle of a dock navvy, which nature started out to make. Then she forgot, and added something of the same stuff she put in Sir Francis Drake. Maybe that made old nature nervous, and she started adding different things. At any rate, Kendall, as finally turned out, had a brain that put him in the first rank of scientists when he felt like it. His general constitution of an ostrich and a flair for gambling. The present position was due to such a gamble. An IP man, a friend of his, had made the mistake of betting him a thousand dollars he wouldn't get beyond a captain's bars in the patrol. Kendall had liked the idea anyway, and adding a bit of a bet to it made it irresistible. So, being a very particular kind of fool, the glorious kind, which old nature turns out now and then, He left the five million dollar estate on Long Island, Terra, the same evening, and joined up in the patrol. The Sir Francis Drake strain had immediately come forth, and Kendall was having the time of his life. In a six-man cruiser, his real work in the interplanetary patrol had started. He was still in it, but it was his command now, and a blue circle on his left sleeve gave his lieutenant's rank. Buck Kendall had immediately proceeded to enlist in his command the I.P. man who had made the mistaken bet, and Rad Cole was on duty with him now. Cole was the technician of the T-247. His rank of technical engineer was practically equivalent to Kendall's circle rank, which made the two more comfortable together. Cole was listening carefully to the signals coming through from Pluto. Pluto. That, he decided, sounds like Tad Nichols' fist. You can recognize that broken-down truck-horse trot of his on the key as far away as you can hear it. Is that what it is, sighed Buck. I thought it was Static mushing him at first. What's he like? Like all the other damn fools who come out two billions of miles to scratch rock, as if there weren't enough already on the inner planets. He's got a power-rich platinum property, sells 90% of his output to buy his power, and the other 11% for his clothes and food. He must be an efficient miner, suggested Kendall, to maintain 101% production like that. No, but his bank account is. He figured out that's the most economic level of production. If he produces less, he won't be able to pay for his heating power. And if he produces more, his operation power will burn up his bank account too fast. Hmm. Sensible way to figure. A man after my own heart. How does he plan to restock his bank account? By mining on mercury. He does it regularly, sort of a commuter. Out here, his power bills eat it up. On mercury, he goes in for potassium and sells the power he collects "'in cooling his dome, of course. "'He's a good miner, "'and the old fool can make money down there. "'Like any really skilled operator, "'Cole had been sending Morris messages while he talked. "'Now he sat quiet, waiting for the reply, "'glancing at the chronometer. "'I take it he's not after money, "'just after fun,' suggested Buck. "'Oh, no, he's after money,' replied Cole gravely. "'You ask him.' HE'S GOING TO MAKE HIS ETERNAL FORTUNE YET BY STRIKING A REAL BED OF JOVIUM, AND THEN HE'LL RETIRE. OH, ONE OF THAT KIND. THEY ALL ARE, COLE LAUGHED, ETERNAL HOPE AND THE REST OF IT. HE LISTENED A MOMENT AND WENT ON. BUT OLD NICHOLS IS A FIRST-GRADE ENGINEER. HE WOULDN'T BE ABLE TO REMAKE THAT BANKROLL EVERY TIME IF HE WASN'T. YOU'LL SEE HIS DOME OUT THERE ON PLUTO. IT'S ALWAYS THE BEST ON THE PLANET tip-top shape, and he's a bit of an experimenter, too. Ah, he's with us. Nichols's ragged signals were coming through, or pounding through. They were worse than usual, and at first Kendall and Cole couldn't make them out. Then, finally, they got them in bursts. The man was excited, and his bad keywork made it worse. Randing stopped. They got him, I think. He said, the uh, Ship as big uh as port said it wa eat it my eh neutrons on instruments he's coming over the horizon. It's huge warship, I think, register instra neutrons abruptly, the signals were blanked out completely. Cole and Kendall sat frozen and stiff, each looked at the other abruptly, then Kendall moved. From the receiver, he ripped out the recording coil and instantly jammed it into the analyzer. He started it through once, then again, then again, at different tone settings, till he found a very shrill whine that seemed to clear up most of Nichols's bad key work. T-247, T-247, emergency, emergency. Randing reports the, over his horizon, huge, Rain manufacture, almost spherical. Randings stopped. They got him, I think. He said the ship was as big as a transport. Said it was headed my way. Neutrons, Aunt Gister, instruments. I think he—he's coming over the horizon. It's huge and a warship, I think. Register instruments, neutrons. Kendall's finger stabbed out at a button. Instantly. The noise of the other men, wakened abruptly by the mild shock, came from behind. Kendall swung to the controls, and Cole raced back to the engine room. The hundred-foot ship shot suddenly forward, under the thrust of her tail ion rockets. A blue-red cloud formed slowly behind her and expanded. Talbot appeared, and silently took her over from Kendall, Station's men snapped Kendall. Emergency call from a miner of Pluto reporting a large armed vessel, which attacked them. Kendall swung back and eased himself against the thrusting acceleration of the overpowered little ship toward the engine room. Cole was bending over his apparatus, making careful checkups, closing weapons circuits. No window gave view of space here, On the left was the tiny tender's pocket. On the right, above and below, the great water tanks that fed the ion rockets. Behind the rockets themselves. The tungsten metal walls were cold and gray, under the ship lights. The hunched bulks of the apparatus crowded the tiny room. Gigantic racked accumulators huddled in the corners. Martin and Garnett swung into position in the fighting tanks just ahead of the power room. Canning slid rapidly through the engine room, oozed through a tiny door, and took up his position in the stern chamber, seated half over the great ion rocket sheath. Ready in positions, Captain Kendall, called the war pilot, as the little green lights appeared on his board. Test discharges on maximum, ordered Kendall. He turned the coal. You start the automatic key. Right, Captain. All shipshape, right as can be, accumulators at 37%, thanks to the loaf out here. They ought to pick up our signal back on Jupiter. He's nearest now. The station on Europa will get it. Talbot, we're only to investigate if the ship is as reported. Have you seen any signs of her? No, sir, and the signals are blank. I'll work from here. Kendall took his position at the commanding control. Cole made way for him and moved to the power board. One by one, he tested the automatic doors, the pressure bulkheads. Kendall watched the instruments as one after another of the weapons were tested on momentary full discharge, titanic flames of five million volt protons. Then the ship thudded to the chatter of the Garnell rifles. Tensely, the men watched the planet ahead, white, yet barely visible in the weak sunlight so far out. It was swimming slowly nearer as the tiny ship gathered speed. Kendall cast a glance over his detector instruments. The radio network was undisturbed. The magnetic and electric fields recognized only the slight disturbances occasioned by the planet itself. There was nothing, nothing. Five hundred miles away, a gigantic ship came into instantaneous being. Simultaneously and instantaneously, the various detector systems howled their warnings. Kendall gasped as the thing appeared on his viewscreen, with the scale lines below. The scale must be cockeyed. They said the ship was fifteen hundred feet in diameter and two thousand long. Retreat, ordered Kendall, at maximum acceleration. Talbot was already acting. The gyroscopes hummed in their castings, and the motors creaked. The T-247 spun on her axes, and abruptly the acceleration built up as the ion rockets began to shudder. A faint smell of heat began to creep out of the converter. Immense weight built up and pressed the men into their specially designed seats. The gigantic ship across the way turned slowly and seemed to stare at the T-247. Then it darted toward them at incredible speed till the poor little T-247 seemed to be standing still, as sailors say. The stranger was so gigantic now the screens could not show all of him. "'God, Buck, he's going to take us!' Simultaneously the 247 rolled, and from her broke every possible stream of destruction. The ion-rocket flames swirled abruptly toward her, the proton guns whined their song of death in their housings, and the heavy, pounding shudder of the Garnell guns racked the ship. Strangely, Kendall suddenly noticed there was a stillness in the ship. The guns and the rays were still going, but the little human sounds seemed abruptly gone. Talbot, Garnett, Only silence answered him. Cole looked across at him in sudden, white-faced amazement. "'They're gone!' gasped Cole. Kendall stood paralyzed for thirty seconds. Then suddenly he seemed to come to life. "'Neutrons! Neutrons in water tanks!' Old Nichols was right. He turned to his friend. "'Cole, the tender, quick!' He darted a glance at the screen. The giant ship still lay alongside a wash of ions, was curling around her, splitting and passing on. The pinprick explosions of the Garnell shells dotted space around her, but never on her. Cole was already racing for the tender lock. In an instant, Kendall piled in after him. The tiny ship, scarcely ten feet long, was powered for flights of only two hours' acceleration, and had oxygen for but twenty-four hours for six men, seventy-two hours for two men, maybe. The heavy door was slammed shut behind them as Cole seated himself at the panel. He depressed a lever, and a sudden smooth push shot them away from the T-247. "'Don't,' called Kendall sharply, as Cole reached for the ion rocket control. "'Douse those lights!' The ship was dark in dark space. The lighted hull of T-247 drifted away from the little tender, further and further, till the giant ship on the far side became visible. "'Not a light, not a sign of fields in operation,' Kendall said, unconsciously, speaking softly. "'This thing is so tiny that it may escape their observation in the fields of the 247 and Pluto down there. It's our only hope.' What happened? How in the name of planets did they kill those men without a sound, without a flash, without even warning us or injuring us? Neutrons, don't you see? Frankly, I don't. I'm no scientist, merely a technician. Neutrons aren't used in any process I've run across. Well, remember, they're uncharged tiny things, small as protons, but without electric field. The result is... They pass right through any ordinary atom, without being stopped, unless they make a direct hit. Tungsten, while it has a beautifully high melting point, is mostly open space, and a neutron just sails right through it, or any heavy atom. Light atoms stop neutrons better. There's less open space in them. Hydrogen is best. Well, a man is made up mostly of light elements, and a man stops those neutrons. It isn't surprising it killed those other fellows invisibly and without a sound. You mean they bathed the ship in neutrons? Shot it full of them, just like our proton guns, only sending neutrons. Well, why weren't we killed, too? Water stops neutrons, I said. Figure it out. The water tanks all around us, great masses of water, gasped Cole. That saved us. Right. I wonder if they've spotted us." The Stranger ship was moving slowly in relation to the T-247. Suddenly the motion changed. The Stranger spun, and a giant lock appeared in her side, opened. The T-47 began to move, floated more and more rapidly, straight for the lock. Her various weapons had stopped operating now, the hoppers of the Garnell guns exhausted, the charge of the accumulators aboard the ship down so low, the proton guns had died out. Lord, they're taking the whole ship. Say, Cole, is that any ship you've ever heard of before? I don't think that's just a pirate. Not a pirate? What then? How'd he get inside our detector screen so fast? Watch. He'll either leave or come after us. The T-247 settled inside the lock now, and the great metal door closed after it. The whole patrol ship had been swallowed by a giant. Kendall was sketching swiftly on a notebook, watching the vast ship closely, putting down a record of its lines and formation. He glanced up at it, and then down for a few more lines, and up at it. The stranger ship abruptly dwindled. It dwindled with incredible speed, rushing off along the line of sight, at an impossible velocity, and abruptly clicking out of sight, like an image on a movie film that has been cut and repaired after the scene that showed the final disappearance. "'Cole! Cole! Did you get that? Did you see? Do you understand what happened?' Kendall was excitedly shouting now. "'He missed us,' Cole sighed. "'It's a wonder hanging out here in space, with the protector of the T-47 fields gone.' No, no, you asteroid, that's not it. He went off faster than light itself." Eh? What? Faster than light? That can't be done. He did it. I know he did. That's how he got inside our screens. He came inside faster than the warning message could relay back the information. Didn't you see him accelerate to an impossible speed, in an impossible time? Didn't you see how he just vanished as he exceeded the speed of light? and stopped reflecting it? The ship was no ship of this solar system. Where did it come from, then? God only knows, but it's a long, long way off. End of chapter 1